situated, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca, and this week we are bringing you Shakespeare and punk rock all in one episode. So, (laughs) strap in. Sounds good. (laughs) But first of all, Emily, do you have a highlight for the week? I do have a highlight. My highlight is actually about the podcast. And it's that more and more we're getting messages or like tags from people who have bought the books that we've recommended and it just makes me happy so that's my highlight this week. I know it's so nice honestly I feel like that's I didn't really know what we were like setting out to achieve when we started but I feel I feel (laughs) like that like gives me such a glow. Yeah even um Stephanie who's on the podcast last week which first of all you've all been very nice about that episode as well which is great but even she got messages from people saying like oh I bought that book because you talked about it so that's that's great that's amazing (laughs) what's your highlight so my highlight I couldn't really ignore this highlight is that my poem Eve which I've been submitting to competitions for about a year was just published in an anthology and I got my copy and I got to see my name beside all the other names which was so cool so exciting (laughs) I know so a little plug just while we're here (laughs) it's called Secret Chords the anthology and it was put together by Folklore Publishing and all the proceeds from the sales of the book go to Pancreatic Cancer UK you can get it from Amazon but if you don't want to give Jeff Bezos your money you can also get it direct from Folklore Publishing's website so all around I'm very happy that this was the little home for this poem yeah oh that's so good Yeah, happy days. (laughs) So Emily, what are you infatuated with this week? I am infatuated with If We Were Villains by M.L. Rio, which is so good. (laughs) Like, (laughs) so good. It's probably my favourite book I've read so far this year. it's like I read it a few weeks ago and when I went back this week to go through it to pick out quotes and stuff I just found myself like (laughs) going back and reading more of it like reading pages at a time because it's just (laughs) so good and yeah I'm excited to talk about it because I don't think I've ever read a book like it so I'm assuming lots of other people haven't either so that's exciting very so this was written in 2017 and It begins with Oliver, our main character, leaving prison after 10 years of being inside. And he has promised to tell a retired detective the true story of the murder that he did not commit. Oh! So Oliver recounts his days in a Shakespeare conservatory with six other actors. They are in their final year. They all live together in this building called the castle. So they're like all on top of each other a lot. Mm-hmm. And their roles as the hero, tyrant, villain, temptress, ingenue and extras follows them off stage. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> and basically when one of them wants to switch roles, it causes this huge problem for the group. And because this is a flashback... We know someone was murdered and we know Oliver was put away for it and has always pleaded guilty, but it wasn't really him who did it. As a side note, 
I found this is a pretty prominent feature of dark academia, which is like a genre I'm really into these days. Mm. Like I've read quite a few books in this genre now and in a dark academia novel, you tend to know like the crime or the tragedy from the start. So the mystery plot as you're reading isn't necessarily what happened, but why it happened. Mm. And they also tend to include what happens to people after they commit an atrocity. Like it's definitely like a very psychological genre. Okay. Um, which I don't know, I think that makes a more interesting story than like just a who done it. Because you kind of have like both, both both sides, sides of it. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, back to if we were villains specifically, I thought I would read a section from the beginning of the novel where Oliver explains what roles um, this group of actors normally play and it also gives you a bit of a sense of what Delacar, like the conservatory, is like. Sweet. It was Friedrich's idea to do Midsummer as a pyjama party. James and I, Lysander and Demetrius respectively, were striped boxers and white undershirts and stood glaring at each other, with Wren, Hermia in a short pink nightgown, trapped between us. Philippa stood on my left in Helena's longer blue nightdress, clutching the pillow she and Wren had walloped each other with in Act 3. In the middle of the photo, Alexander and Meredith were wrapped around each other like a pair of snakes. He a sinister and seductive Oberon in a slinky silk bathrobe, she a blow-up-truest Titania in revealing black lace. But Richard was the most arresting, standing among the other rude mechanicals in clownish flannel pyjamas, enormous donkey ears protruding from his thick black hair. His nick bottom was aggressive, unpredictable and totally deranged. He terrorised the fairies, tormented the other players, scared the hell out of the audience and, as always, stole the show. The seven of us had survived three yearly purges because we were each somehow indispensable to the playing company. In the course of four years, we were transformed from a rabble of bit players to a small, meticulously trained dramatic troupe. Some of our theatrical assets were obvious. Richard was pure power, six foot three and carved from concrete, with sharp black eyes and a thrilling bass voice that flattened every other sound in a room. He played warlords and despots and anyone else the audience needed to be impressed by or afraid of. Meredith was uniquely designed for seduction, a walking daydream of supple curves in skin like satin. But there was something merciless about her sex appeal. You watched her when she moved, whatever else was happening, and whether you wanted to or not. She and Richard had been together in every typical sense of the word since the spring semester of our second year. Wren, Richard's cousin, though you would have never have guessed it by looking at them, was the ingenue, the girl next door, a waifish thing with corn silk hair and round china doll eyes. Alexander was our resident villain, thin and wiry with long dark curls and sharp canine teeth that made him look like a vampire when he smiled. Philippa and I were more difficult to categorise. She was tall, olive-skinned, vaguely boyish. There was something cool and chameleonic about her that made her equally convincing as Horatio or Amelia. I, on the other hand, was average in every imaginable way. Not especially handsome, not especially talented, not especially good at anything, but just good enough at everything that I could pick up whatever slack the others left. I was convinced I had survived the third year purge because James would have been moody and sullen without me. 
Fate had dealt us a good hand in our first year when he and I found ourselves squashed together in a tiny room on the top floor of the dormitories. When I first opened our door, he looked up from the bag he was unpacking, held out his hand and said, Here comes Sir Oliver. You are well met, I hope. (laughs) He was the sort of actor everyone fell in love with as soon as he stepped on stage, and I was no exception. Even in our early days at Delacar, I was protective and even possessive of him when other friends came too close and threatened to assert my place as best, an event as rare as a meteor shower. Some people saw me as Gwendolyn always cast me, simply the loyal sidekick. James was so quintessentially a hero that this didn't bother me. He was the handsomest of us, Meredith once compared him to a Disney prince, but more charming than that was his childlike depth of feeling on stage and off. For three years I enjoyed the overflow of his popularity and admired him intensely, without jealousy, even though he was Friedrich's obvious favourite in as much the same way that Richard was Gwendolyn's. Of course, James did not have Richard's ego or temper and was liked by everyone, while Richard was hated and loved with equal ferocity. Ooh. (laughs) It's very like panning the camera to each member of the the team. Yeah, definitely. Love that. So yeah, before I like even go into the characters, I think you can get the sense that Delacour is a very elite place mm. and it does, like this quote does set up that this group of actors, like one are just great actors, but also two that they're like tenacious and work hard, like they've survived these yearly purges and Shakespeare is their life, which I will talk more about in a moment. But yeah, about the characters, I love how Rio set this up because she's introduced them as archetypal characters. Mm. So that's what you go in expecting them all to be like. And like, yeah, there are similarities between their roles and themselves. That's why they've all been typecast that way. But there are departures from their given roles and that's what leads to the interesting story. So basically, even though they are presented as archetypal characters at the start, they're a lot more complex than that and they're all quite morally grey as well which I think makes an interesting read because definitely uh, I mean I don't particularly need to like a character to like reading about them and that is definitely what this book is like yeah for sure that's kind of dark academia vibes as well though I think they're really into like their morally grey protagonist rather than a hero or a villain yeah definitely and yeah I actually I I was going to point out at this point how Oliver is a really interesting choice as a narrator because he's confessed himself that he's hard to categorise and he often ends up as like the right-hand man of James's characters but he's also cast in a lot of like bitty roles as well just like a lot of random ones Mm. like he often plays more than one character for each play that they do yeah so I don't want to go into that like too much but I just think it's worthy pointing out that although Oliver is very much part of the group he feels inferior to everyone um so that causes very interesting dynamics between them all especially between him and James who he clearly admires yeah and yeah those dynamics are what makes him a really interesting narrator it's kind of common in Shakespeare play tradition, right, to have like that one person that's versatile. So yep. it's, it's interesting that they've like included that and taken yeah. it from the point of view of him. Yeah, definitely. I thought I'd 
move on to what I think is like the biggest theme in the book and this is what I'm kind of going to mostly talk about today which is that this book is as much about differentiating fantasy from reality as it is about like the mystery of the novel Mm. and the writing itself reflects this it's divided into acts and scenes instead of like parts and chapters Uh, so you do get the sense that you're reading a tragedy and sometimes the dialogue is written in dramatic cues instead of prose love that so yeah so you have this like blended form of drama and prose on the page which works in so many different ways but what I think is most effective about it is it like reflects the lives of the characters like them blending into their roles Mm. and the characters also speak in Shakespeare quotes a lot of the time I mean James just did in that last one that I read out but it flows so naturally to them that it actually doesn't feel as jarring as that might sound and I do just want to be clear that like you don't need to be a Shakespeare buff or like an English student or whatever to understand them because like the explanation is in the text and the context and all that. Rio has an MA in Shakespeare studies and is Uh doing a PhD in early modern literature so she knows her stuff and how to make it like approachable basically yeah does it like signal the shakespeare quote at all on the page like does it italicize it or it's yeah it's italicized yeah whenever they're speaking shakespeare that's very approachable then because yeah i I know that shakespeare's works can be kind of like love or hate or some people find them like inaccessible i guess but i actually think this novel would be a really good introduction to shakespeare if you haven't read him before or if you kind of want to get into his work more like, I've enjoyed studying Shakespeare, but I've never read it, like, just for fun. Mm, um, same. But I'm actually, like, genuinely keen to <laughs> revisit the plays now because of this book. So because of that, I wanted to read out a passage where Oliver explains why they all love Shakespeare so much. <laughs> like, why they've dedicated themselves to studying him and only him. It's also a quote that brings up an interesting question of the novel which is can you blame Shakespeare for the murder like can you blame the tragedy that happens on their obsession so yeah this is an interaction between the retired detective uh, who's called Colborn and Oliver Colborn nods vaguely then his expression changes shifts brow furrowing do you blame Shakespeare for any of it The question is so unlikely, so nonsensical coming from such a sensible man that I can't suppress a smile. I blame him for all of it, I say. He mimics my smile, though his is tentative, unsure of where the humour really is. Why is that? It's hard to put into words. I pause, waste a minute trying to collect my thoughts, then proceed without having collected anything at all. We spent four years, and most of us years before that, immersed in Shakespeare, submerged. Here we could indulge our collective obsession. We spoke it as a second language, conversed in poetry, and lost touch with reality a little. I reconsider. Well, that's misleading. Shakespeare is real, but his characters live in a world of real extremes. They swing from ecstasy to anguish, love to hate, wonder to terror. It's not melodrama, though. They're not exaggerating. 
Every moment is crucial. I glance sideways at him, unsure if I'm making any sense. He's still wearing that uncertain half-smile, but he nods, so I continue. A good Shakespearean actor, a good actor of any stripe really, doesn't just say words, he feels them. We felt all the passions of the characters we played as if they were our own. But a character's emotions don't cancel out the actors, instead you feel both at once. Imagine having all your own thoughts and feelings tangled up with all the thoughts and feelings of a whole other person. It can be hard sometimes to sort out which is which. That's so good. I know. <laughs> I have a friend who's an actor and she, I interviewed her once about like, why why do you like acting? And that's almost exactly what she said. Mm. Yeah, like I think this book makes you understand the theatre kid. <laughs> like, Definitely. You kind of get the obsession. <laughs> I love that line about um, I paused to collect my thoughts and succeeded in collecting absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow, that's so relatable. Yeah, I feel that. But yeah, I think this is such an interesting quote because it's kind of obvious what he's saying. Like, whether it's drama or prose, everything is exaggerated in order to tell like a more exciting story. Mm. Um, we already know that. But what Oliver emphasises is the idea of connecting with something so much that you believe it or feel it yourself. And with Shakespeare writing in such extremes, that means you would think or act in extremes as well. Yeah. And again, like, I do think that's just a feature of dark academia. Like, it's fine to be obsessed with something to an extent, but you reach a tipping point where it becomes embedded in your reality and that causes problems. <laughs> because well, it's where academia gets dark, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Because, like, the characters know they're too wrapped up in Shakespeare but they are past the point of separating themselves from the roles so it's just fascinating to read Mm. and also like I think this quote explains why Shakespeare's plays are so compelling and like why they're remade over and over and I think like what Oliver says does make Shakespeare sound more enjoyable than the zeitgeist often portrays. It's putting Um, it in a modern context, I suppose, because what makes it feel inaccessible is that it's so old. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oliver says as well as a great example of that theme of differentiating reality from fantasy. Mm. And the quote I said at the start as well, where Oliver introduces everyone, not as themselves, but as their connections to the roles they play. And it's, oh, it's just such a, like, layered book. And I'll tell you about, like, another layer of sorts, which uh, I have one more quote, which is just a short, like, couple paragraphs. And this one is actually from a performance. Okay. We see a few different performances throughout the book, but I think my two favourites were the traditional performances that the fourth years do at Delacour every year. So every Halloween they act scenes from Macbeth and every Christmas they act scenes from Romeo and Juliet. (laughs) But the cool thing about these performances is that everyone is cast in secret. So only you know your part and your lines until you're doing the performance in front of an audience. Um, Like they have no idea who their scene partners are until they arrive and say their lines. That's so cool. It's like an acting secret Santa. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. (laughs) 
the Macbeth one they do at a lake so it's like night time it's all like misty and spooky and I would genuinely love to see that yeah and the Romeo and Juliet performance which is the one I'm going to read a wee bit from is at a masked ball so not only do you have people like emerging from the crowd and starting to act out Shakespeare but everyone is also masked including the audience and again that just sounds some, like something I want to see uh, it sounds cool <laughs> it's <laughs> like the secret cinema things yeah yeah that's what it made me think of actually so yeah this quote is from their performance of Romeo and Juliet Oliver has just arrived as Benvolio who is Romeo's cousin for anyone who doesn't know no one knows who is who until they speak and the scene goes like this. Yee. We scattered from the centre of the room, which erupted in applause as Meredith ascended the stairs to the balcony again. I hovered at the edge of the crowd, watching her feet on the steps until she was gone, then turned to the nearest reveller, a boy, I didn't know who, only his brown eyes visible through the holes in his mask, and said, Oh, where is Romeo? To another spectator. Saw you him today? Right glad I am he was not at this fray. At exactly that moment, Romeo emerged from a door on the east wall, clad all in blue and silver, his mask gently curving back toward his temples. He seemed almost a mythical figure, Ganymede, caught beautifully between man and boy. I knew it would be James, had guessed as much, but his appearance was no less affecting. See where he comes, I said, to the girl nearest me, in a softer tone. That strange possessive pride washed over me again. Everyone in the room was watching James. How could they not? But I was the only one who really knew him, every inch. So please you, step aside. I'll know his grievance or be much denied. Good morrow, cousin. James looked up, looked right at me. He seemed surprised to see me standing there, though I didn't know for the life of me why he should be. Was I not always his right-hand man, his lieutenant? Banquo or Benvolio or Oliver, little difference. Ooh. I love that bit so much. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's only like a little bit, but I think you can see that idea of like fantasy and reality being blurred there. It refers back to that idea of Oliver always being cast as James's right hand man, James always being the hero. You also get the sense that he's talking about real life as well yeah throughout the book there's lots of scenes where the characters are acting but Oliver's questioning whether the words are really coming from the character or the person because as I said they all talk in Shakespeare quotes all the time so that makes it even harder to tell character and real person apart Mm. Um, and I just think it's such a great well thought out detail in the fact that they do Romeo and Juliet in masks I also think was an excellent choice this is quite far into the book the character who dies has died already so the whole idea of like duplicity and lying and acting is just part of their lives now oh so like I don't think it's just circumstance that Rio chose to make a masked ball that they had to act out also it's just like a fun thing to write oh yeah definitely it's a masked ball yeah, and like the, she describes the costumes so well, and I think all the audience are in, like very plain masks, but then the actors all have like very intricate like ones that go with their characters' costume and stuff. It's really cool. That's awesome. It sounds like almost Gossip Girl. 
Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's what it reminds me of. <laughs> yeah, it's got, like, the drama of, of Gossip Girl. Obviously, Gossip Girl's uh, not quite so um, highbrow in its tone. But... Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, that's that's basically my thoughts today, because if I say anything else, I'll just spoil it. But, yeah, I, th- I think it's so clever, and I have, like, honestly never read a book like it, like, style or story, and I can't remember the last time an ending to a novel made me react how I did. I'm obviously not going to say why, yeah. but there was like, I had like a stunned silence and then I like <laughs> screeched to my sister. I was like, oh my God. Uh, and that's all I'll say about that. But yeah, it's like very shocking. It's very beautifully written um, and just like a total dream to read. And it's a very literary book, which... You guys obviously know we're both fans of. Definitely. Yeah, highly, highly recommend it. And I also just want to quickly shout out that on ML Rio's website, you can actually read the prologue and the first two scenes or chapters of this novel. So if you are intrigued and like want to see what the blended prose and drama reads like before buying the book, uh, you can head there. Uh, so I'll link that in the show notes. That's a really cool idea. It is. I've like, because I was just on her website to see, but I just wanted to see if she like did know Shakespeare, <laughs> like if she was like a shouldn't or whatever, which obviously I found out she is. And then I saw, yeah, first prologue and the first two chapters are available for free to read. I think that's such a good marketing tool, especially yeah, the now because you can't go into a bookshop and like hold the book yeah. and like flip through it. Yeah, definitely. Nice one. Well done. <laughs> What is your infatuation this week? My infatuation this week is Clothes, 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 Music, 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 Boys, Boys, Boys by Viv Albertine, (laughs) which is her memoir. I'm not going to say the full title every time that I refer to it, (laughs) but I felt like you needed the emphasis there. So I bought this book when I was putting together my project on music and memoir for my master's because Viv Albertine was the original guitarist in the 1970s all-girl punk band The Slits. They were one of the first female-led punk bands, and she was one of the first female electric guitarists in Britain to play professionally. So I was like, oh, that's going to be a goldmine of music history, which (laughs) it absolutely was. And as well as being in that really impactful band, she was a personal friend of characters like Vivian Westwood, Sid Vicious and Johnny Rotten. She's a really accomplished film and TV director. She was taught by the film scholar Laura Mulvey, whose papers we read at uni. (laughs) She starred in a feature film, she's beat cancer, and she had an impressive solo career after her divorce in music again. So, she's a very impressive (laughs) woman, (laughs) and obviously that made her memoir an amazing story to read. But obviously, being a memoir, the plot of the book is her actual life. So in case anyone does want to read it, I don't want to spoil any of the like quirkier anecdotes that make it like special. You know, like the bits yeah. that I would normally want to share would be the bits that I'd be like, oh, this is such cool trivia. Mm. But I don't want to do that because that's what made reading it enjoyable. So what I thought I'd do was something a little bit different. I thought I'd take kind of a nerdy look at this as a brilliant example of memoir writing and bring in some of the concepts that I learned about during my master's and hopefully this can shed some light on techniques for autobiographical or reflective writing for anyone who's interested. 
Oh, I love that. Yeah. The first thing that I noticed about this book was the way that it really, for the most part, sticks to the title's mission statement of Clothes Music Boys. Mm-hmm. Albertine writes in really short chapters, like some of them are one page or two pages, kind of like Eve Babbitt's. And they're all from chronological order, from childhood. But each chapter focuses on at least one, if not all, of like those elements, clothes, music and boys. Right. Um, so to give you an example, I will read a chapter <laughs> which is only three pages from near the beginning of the book. This one's from 1975. The chapter is called The Leap. Malcolm's new band is playing at the Chelsea School of Art tonight, wants to come says Rory. Yes, I say. No, says Mick. Mick already knows about the Sex Pistols, and even though he's friends with the bass player, Glenn Matlock, they are his rivals. He says he's going to rehearse with his own group tonight, not watch someone else's. He tries to put me off, but I'm going anyway. They sound interesting. Mick is Mick Jones, and they're dating at this point. The Pistols are playing in the school hall. It looks like every other school hall, bare wooden floor, stage at one end with tattered green silk curtains pulled to one side, vaulted ceiling with metal struts and grey plastic chairs stacked high along the walls. Smells like floor polish. Not many people in the audience, just a few clusters, clumped and dotted around the edge of the room. An impish-looking guy dressed in a powder blue drape jacket, with pale orange curls falling onto his forehead, heads over to us. Here's Malcolm, says Rory. Malcolm McLaren looks older than everyone else and is better dressed, like he's got a bit of money. Rory introduces us. Malcolm's friendly and charming, but not flirty. He seems pleased to see another person at the gig. I can imagine him thinking, good, there were ten people last time and now there are eleven. He has a very open, non-judgmental expression and a look of amusement in his eye. There's no up and down look to check out my clothes, which I would have expected from someone who owns a boutique. As Malcolm touches my hand, I think, I'm wearing the wrong clothes, I'm in the wrong colour, in the wrong place. The thought just comes to me in that second that we touch. I'm wearing a tight, kid-sized brown leather bomber jacket, like something Mark Bolin would have worn. Handmade baby blue leather boots and jeans. My hair's been cut and coloured by Keith at Smile and Knightsbridge, very blonde on top and very dark underneath. I just know it's all wrong. I'm mortified. I was quite cool at Dingwalls. I'm very cool at Hammersmith. I'm not cool here. I look around to see what the other people are wearing. Black. The Sex Pistols come on. They're loud and raucous, but not as, not bad musicians. I've seen bands that have this anarchic quality. Bleh. I've seen bands that have this anarchic quality before. The Pink Fairies, the Pretty Things, the Edgar Broughton Band. It's the singer who stands out. Johnny Rotten slouches at the front of the stage, propped up on the mic stand. He's leaning so far forward he looks as if he might topple into the empty space in front of the audience. His face is pale and his body is twisted into such an awkward, ugly shape he looks deformed. No dancing about, trying to entertain or attempting to make us like him. He looks ordinary, about the same age as us, the kind of boy I was at comprehensive school with. He's not a flashy star like Mark Bolin or David Bowie, all dressed up in exotic costumes. He's not a virtuoso musician like Eric Clapton or Peter Green. He's not even a macho rock and roll pub band singer. He's just a bloke from Finsbury Park, London, England, who's pissed off. Johnny sneers at us in his ordinary North London accent. His voice isn't trained and tuneful. It's a whiny, cynical drawl, every song delivered unemotionally. There's no fake American twang either. 
All the things I'm so embarrassed about, John's made into virtues. He's unapologetic about who he is and where he comes from, proud of it even. He's not taking the world's lack of interest as confirmation that he's wrong and worthless. I look up at him twisting and yowling and realise it's everyone else who's wrong, not him. How did he make that mental leap from musically untrained, state school educated, council estate boy to standing on stage in front of a band? I think he's brave. A revolutionary. He's sending a very powerful message. The most powerful message anyone can ever transmit. Be yourself. I've always thought that my particular set of circumstances, poor, North London, comprehensive school, council flat, girl, haven't equipped me for success. As I watch the Sex Pistols, I realise that this is the first time I've seen a band and felt there are no barriers between me and them. Ideas that have been in the back of my mind for years rush to the forefront of my brain. John Lennon, Yoko Ono, The Kinks, the possible female in third year band, the untrained female drummer in Kokomo, Sandy Shaw, Susie Quattro, Emma Peel, the two girls in the incredible string band, Patti Smith, Mick Jones, Johnny Rotten, my love of music, this is it. At last I see not only that other universe I've always wanted to be part of, but the bridge to it. (laughs) Oh, I loved that. I know, and I love this chapter because, like a lot of the book, it's obviously packed with detail. Like, you have the really vivid descriptions of the clothes, and I think that's like, paints a picture and draws you in. Mm. But also, as she points out, it serves to show how big a deal clothes were at this point. Yeah. As a mode of, like, self-expression and social mobility. And the music is at the forefront, which makes sense because it's what she's dedicated her life to. And she wraps it all into her inner world, her emotional life, by making it the story of how she met one of the significant boys in her life, which is Malcolm McLaren, Mm. and dedicating some time to his character. Obviously, it's a bit subversive, too, because at the end, she talks about loads of female musicians. And this is a hugely feminist text. So, like, the schoolgirl mantra of close, 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 music, 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 boys, 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 (laughs) is meant to be, like, really tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. But it is also literally what the book's about. So, in that way, it's, like, a manageable lens through which she's filtered her experiences. Mm -hmm. As I was reading it, I was thinking about that, and I think that's a thing that the best memoirs do tend to do, is to pick a theme or a series of motifs and write it through the lens of those because obviously a human life is like far too complex to do justice (laughs) to a whole thing if you just go I'm gonna write a book and don't focus it in any way but yeah taking select aspects of your experience which you feel have been defining for you can really help to focus reflective writing and some other examples if people aren't keen on this book would be Dolly Alderton does it with friendship and dating and everything I know about love yeah. Jesse Greengrass and Maggie Nelson do it with experiences of pregnancy and like bodily things in their memoirs Sight and the Argonauts. And Blake Morrison tells his life story through his relationship with his dad in And When Did You Last See Your Father? And those are all really sort of highly rated memoirs. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a really common technique, but I think that's because it works. <laughs> Yeah, Dolly also uses food as well, which I yeah. think is a good one. I forgot about that, actually. Yeah, she does. Yeah, it's like... Like recipe. A, yeah, recipe for sort of every... Is it like every kind of section of her life? every kind, Or maybe every kind of story she tells there's a recipe? It's something like that. Yeah, well, I think she's really influenced by Nora Ephron, isn't she? Yeah, who so, did the same, yeah. Heartburn, yeah. Another aspect of the memoir, which I thought was really skillfully handled, this is a concept that I learned about last year which is kind of 
you don't have to learn about it to know it, but it was it was helpful to read about it. <laughs> so the differentiation between the remembered self, the one that's in the past, and the remembering self, the one that's writing the memoir. Mm. To be blunt, bad memoirs don't differentiate. They work in <laughs> absolutes. They're like, this is, hap- this is what happened, this is how it felt, that's it. And they don't account for the nuances that come with like the very specific act of remembering. And that, yeah. that that change, like remembering, changes a memory, like passage of time changes a memory, personal growth <laughs> changes a memory. So when I was learning about that off of like a theoretical text, it sounded quite convoluted because I was like, how do you signal which is the remembered self and which is the remembering? How do you keep them distinct when they're all the one person? Yeah. But this is another chapter from the book, just a couple on from that one I read, and it's called the Clash. And I think this shows it really well. Paul Simonon, mixed bass player, hasn't got anywhere to live, so he's moved into my squat. Paul is as handsome as a film star, like Paul Newman and James Dean rolled together, and he's nice to girls, not chauvinistic. He's a bit tongue-tied and bashful, but he can afford to be, his looks do all the talking. It's Paul who comes up with a new band name, The Clash, from a newspaper headline. Paul and I really like each other and he respects me, which always goes down well. Because Paul now lives with me and Alan at Davis Road, the Clash have their band meetings here. Mick lives with his grandmother in Royal Oak, so they don't want to go there, and Joe still lives with the 101ers. I wouldn't mind the Clash filling up the place, but they close the door of the kitchen and have this very self-important air about them. I don't take their meetings seriously, but Bernie does. You'd think he was planning World War III. Bernie's always the last one to arrive. I open the front door and he pushes past me, knocking me out of the way, and stomps upstairs to the kitchen, slamming the door behind him. Not a word spoken. I can't stand him. He's a vegetarian. Not that that makes him horrible. He once told me he was brought up a vegetarian and when he's feeling rebellious, he goes out and buys a burger. The one thing Bernie and I have in common is what we think The Clash's songs should be about. We both think it would be better if they stopped writing soppy love songs and wrote material that reflects their everyday lives. We bang on to Mick and Joe about it. They take it in and turn I'm so bored with you into I'm so bored with the USA and write more political stuff like White Riot about confrontations with the police during the Notting Hill Carnival and career opportunities, which refers to the time Mick worked at the Dole office and had to open suspicious looking letters that could have been letter bombs. The senior staff wouldn't touch them. In italics at the end it says Funny though, now my favourite Clash songs are the love songs Stay free, train in vain and should I stay or should I go Mick is a great love song writer (laughs) So that is literally how simple it is in this book is that she will put remarks in italics Yeah. Another way that she sort of signals this is that the remembered self the one in the past is all told in the present tense Mm-hmm. And remembering is done in the past tense, mm. in italics. So yeah. it's really simple, but it's really effective because that present tense narration all the way through allows you to be drawn into the memories with her and it makes them feel really alive and active. But then the past tense interjections remind us that she is real. She's a real person who's grown and that we're reading a memoir and not a novel. And yeah. I think that that makes it feel quite like special Mm, yeah definitely (laughs) and she also takes a moment out at the end of the book in the last chapter to invert that rule of present and then past tense 
And I'm just going to read it out because I think it's a really nice little set of remarks, but also mm-hmm. I think it's cool the way she's done this. So this is the last chapter. To give you an idea of the kind of time span of this book, those chapters were 1975, this is 2013. I picture my journey through life as a circle, as if I'm travelling around a sphere like an orange. I started at the bottom and began to climb up the side, becoming more confident as I went along. Sometimes life got difficult and I was hanging upside down, traversing it as best I could. When I reached the top, I tipped over and began to go down the other side. This part of the journey seems to be going faster. I find I'm drawn to behaviours and people that remind me of my past. Even if they're difficult, they're familiar. I recognise some of my parents' traits creeping into my character. My true nature, which I suppressed in order to function and succeed as an adult, is surfacing again. I'm shy and inclined to introversion. Still, I keep on travelling to the underside of the orange. There's no way to stop it. This is where I am at the moment. And then she has a list. A great relationship with my smart, beautiful daughter, my sister and my mother. A couple of good loyal friends. A small income and a home slash room of my own. The freedom to create. I never sit outside my house not wanting to go in. Rather, I hate to leave it. I've rebuilt my health. I'm a good weight. Occasional confidence that I can cope with anything. Occasional despair and loneliness. No big deal, not as bad as flu. Lovely pool of talented musicians to work with. Playing some great shows. Wonder who to put as next of Ken on hospital forms. I still believe in love. Aww. (laughs) Which is really sweet and charming, I really love the line, despair and loneliness, no big deal, not as bad as flu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that really made me laugh. <laughs> what I appreciated about this chapter, like, structurally, is that she starts off casting a wide net back over the book in the past tense, mm. showing that we've kind of caught up because we're at the end of the story as she can tell it. But then she does this clever wee thing of slipping into the present tense to list what our life looks like at the time of writing. Yeah, And that kind of signals, as per the rules that the book's already had, that she knows that this chapter of her life, if you like, is a memory. Mm. And it's little moments like that that show her as like a skilled writer, as well as someone that's just had an impressive life. Um, Yeah. Which I really appreciate. Because a lot of people think that you have to have done something extraordinary to write good memoir, but Mm. you just have to be good at writing your memories. Yeah, like, for a while, like autobiographies were this like massive thing it was like every celebrity had to have one Mm -hmm. and I like just never liked them because it was just like oh this is what happened to me and this is what happened to me and this is what happened to me and it it was like clearly they just said it to a ghostwriter and they'd written it out whereas I feel like there's memoirs now where like you can just tell they've been written by the person Mm -hmm. and they are well written they're not just stories it's like how they're written as well yeah like i didn't know i didn't buy this because i'm a fan of viv albertine i didn't know who she was before i read it Mm. like you so you don't need to be impressed by the person to be impressed by the book yeah which i think is important and there's one more feature of the book that i wanted to just appreciate 
and it's something that we both have a total soft spot for it's the use of epigraphs at the start of some chapters love an epigraph love an epigraph (laughs) so good and we spoke in episode 19 about the ways that these little introductory quotes can function in novels um, Mm -hmm. to help with thematic ties or world building and I actually found myself thinking a lot of the same thoughts when I was reading this book Albertine includes a quote at the start of some chapters not every single one which sort of sums up important lessons or impactful moments in her life but what's interesting about them is that the sources of the quotes are wildly varied okay (laughs) to the point where it seems at first glance like they're just picked at random Mm -hmm. but the random pattern actually serves to demonstrate really succinctly her influences and like the cultural zeitgeist of the world she grew up in Mm mm-hmm I think like the quotes that a person chooses to help illustrate their own life story obviously help with the world building of that story because it shows you all the culture they've inhabited and what was important to them. And yeah. it also works to kind of foreshadow the smaller stories that you're about to be told. Mm-hmm. So what I've done is just taken a list of some of the many and varied epigraphs and I'm just going to fire them out to give you an okay. idea. <laughs> so, <clears throat> 1958. I wish I were a girl again, half savage and hardy and free. Emily Bronte. <laughs> 1973. I love your hat. Captain Beefheart. <laughs> 1975. There are all kinds of love in the world, but never the same love twice. F. Scott Fitzgerald. 1976. There's no such thing as a wrong note. Art Tatum. 1977. Rock and roll is simply an attitude. You don't have to play the greatest guitar. Johnny Thunders. <laughs> who Albertine knew. 1978, it's a waste of time to think that if you coloured a painting red, what might happen if you painted it black? Yoko Ono. 1981, physician, heal thyself. Luke 4.23 from the Bible. (laughs) 1982, that awful yawn which sleep cannot abate. Lord Byron. 1984, they say time changes things, but you actually have to change them yourself. Andy Warhol. 1995 to 1999. Abandon all hope of fruition. Zen proverb. 1999 to 2007. Out of your vulnerabilities will come your strength. Sigmund Freud. 2007. Every human encounter is an adventure. And this one is attributed to Tony Bennett. Not that Tony Bennett. My ceramics tutor. (laughs) 2009, you're not an artist, you're a wanker, attributed simply to my husband. (laughs) And 2011, behind every successful woman is a man who tried to stop her. Graffiti on the wall of the women's lavatory, the George Tavern, East London. (laughs) Yeah. So I think what struck me the most about the epigraphs is that cumulative effect is a kind of microcosm of memoir. Like, she's drawing on so many different sources so that the intellectual and imagined life is represented, as is the real life that was lived. Like, you've got the sort of, all the bookie quotes, but then you've got, like, quotes from people she actually knew. And I love how she's blended her real life and her imagination in this book because she tells all of her lived events in a way that gives a real insight into how she sees and processes the world, like her specifically, which is, yeah. is your imagination. 
so yeah it's a really brilliant example of a form which I really like and it just helps in the reading of the book that she's done loads of cool shit that's like fun to read about yeah (laughs) yeah definitely that sounds like a very fun read yeah it's really fun and like I say I haven't read out like a lot of the actual fun bits of it because well I think that people should just read it but yeah there's also a nice feature of the book is that there's loads of photography in it Albertine was you know into she went to art school so Mm -hmm. there's some of her own photography there is photocopy like bits of postcards and letters from like these famous people if you're into that area of music Mm. um you can like see their handwriting and stuff which I guess is pretty cool (laughs) there's like original album cover photography there's there's loads of art and stuff in it. It's like a very arty book. So yeah, yeah, it's like a fun. It's a fun object to just flip through. <laughs> oh, nice! I like the sound of that. Yeah. So, do you have any writing chat this week? I do. I don't really have a huge amount to say about my writing, mm. but I thought I would share something that. V.E. Schwab posted on her Instagram stories and I just wanted to read it out because I think it will be good to hear for fellow writers out there. Okay. So she posted, every time I sit down with this book I'm filled with fear that it's too quiet, that it's too odd, that it won't sit happily on any shelf, that I'm too empty to fill it up, that my head is too scattered to find the road, too scared to follow it into the dark. And I guess I don't have a lot to add to that, except that, like, I get those feelings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I actually find it kind of comforting to read because she's a very successful author and she still feels like that. So, like, in a way, it's nice to know that other writers feel that kind of imposter syndrome way sometimes and it doesn't affect whether you will be a success or not. Like, I think it will just always be there. Like imposter syndrome is obviously not something that you want, but I think annoyingly it's something that you just have to deal with <laughs> when you're yeah. a creative person. So I, I kind of like that. I think I've said this before, but I like that she's very honest about the writing process. Like she's very positive about it as well. It's just that clearly that day she was <laughs> not so positive. Yeah. Um. But I still I kind of appreciate when like authors are quite honest about what it's like to write a book I appreciate it too not just from a writer's perspective but from the perspective of someone who still hears like anyone can write a book yeah I'm like well you do it then (laughs) (laughs) because it's really difficult to write sometimes and like it's not difficult in the way that like manual labor is difficult but it is it is a labor of your brain and people don't seem to understand that still so it's nice when really successful people point out that like no this wasn't easy for me either yeah like she's been very honest about like Adi LaRue is is probably been like her most successful book she's written like 15 books or something like it's taken like I think she's always been very successful but this has been like the kind of big one that Mm. like everyone seems to be talking about and she's been very open about the fact that she's terrified that like any book she does from now on is just not going to live up to it. Yeah. Which I think is, again, obviously that's not a nice feeling, but it's kind of comforting to know that like other people think like that. Yeah. <laughs> <as well. laughs> 
<laughs> I think it's a shame as well, though, like, because it is that fear that you're going to do something, that you're going to peak. Yeah. And then, and then like, what are you going to do? I know. I know. So, yeah, I thought I'd just bring that to more people. <laughs> nice. Thank you. What about you? What have you got to say about writing this week? I've not been doing a lot of it. <laughs> it's been it's been a no thoughts head empty kind of a month for Rebecca but because of that last week I took part in a workshop run by Phoebe Stooks whose book Platinum Blonde I've talked about on here mm-hmm. um, I think episode 20 but anyway the workshop that she ran was on new and unusual sonnets oh yeah that's that's what I said <laughs> so <laughs> I am not a I'm not a sonnet or a form poet, but mm. I haven't felt particularly challenged in my writing since finishing uni, and I do feel really intimidated by form, even though it's something that we actually did a lot of at uni. I just yeah. when it comes to writing it, I never feel knowledgeable enough to be comfortable, and so I usually write in free verse. But this was a little 90 minute workshop and it was really valuable because it went through obviously the classical rules of the sonnet. But more importantly, it was about the way that contemporary writers have broken those rules to achieve different effects. Mm-hmm. So that's given me like the confidence to know that that's something I can use and approach if I want it. And yeah, it was like, I, I'm not going to say that I immediately got up and started writing sonnets. I didn't. But it was just interesting to go sort of out of my comfort zone. And I think I'm going to just try and attend more one-off workshops like that because as much as I don't miss all the stress of uni I do miss like the stimulation (laughs) just the learning (laughs) yeah so it's taken me a while to like come back around to that but now I'm like okay I I can learn more things now yeah well I suppose if it's a one-off thing as well like yeah there's no what's the harm in it kind of exactly it's not like you don't yeah there's no commitment in it yeah it was just an interesting way to spend like an hour and a half nice I quite like sonnets actually I like them too I like reading them I just yeah I think I've just like never felt, you know, like sometimes there'll be like a 14 line poem and someone's like, oh, it's a sonnet. And I'm like, is it though? (laughs) But this work, like this workshop helped me kind of feel a bit more comfortable deciding for myself, like what is a modern sonnet and what is a version of a sonnet and what is a subversive sonnet and like that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, it was good. you have a quickfire favorite for us i do i have a tv favorite this week it's a netflix true crime documentary called crime scene the vanishing at the cecil hotel so the cecil hotel is infamous for being surrounded by death (laughs) let's say is this the one in hollywood yeah yeah it's like downtown la multiple serial killers have lived there It's suspected the Black Dahlia met her killer there. It's around Skid Row, so it's a pretty rundown area. And this documentary series talks about all of these things, but it's centred on the disappearance, then sadly death, of Elisa Lam. She went missing while staying there in 2013 and was later found dead in the water tank on the roof of the hotel. Oh, I heard about that. Yeah, so it's it's a very confusing case and this series walks you through it all while also talking about the hotel's 
history. Mm. So I actually knew about Elisa Lam before this documentary. I've heard her story on a couple podcasts. But I still really liked the show because it did have information I haven't seen before. And I won't like say what the investigation concluded because obviously like that's why you watch it. Mm. But there are so many theories about what could have happened to her. And like was it murder? Was it an accident? Was it self-inflicted? There's even like supernatural theories because like that's how bizarre a case (laughs) it is. Wow. And obviously it's true crime so it's very dark and I would check your trigger warnings and all that but if you are looking for a true crime watch that is more wild than like only sinister (laughs) I recommend it. It's four episodes all about like an hour long so it's it's in-depth but it doesn't feel like they've like dragged it out or anything and yeah it's definitely obviously it's horrific what happened to her but you know how you you just get some true crime things which are just so dark and harrowing and like you're kind of like why did someone make this because now I'm sad Mm. like (laughs) this one's a bit more I don't know intriguing there's a a bit more sort of yeah like mystery to it I guess yeah it doesn't sound yeah I'm intrigued about how someone ended up dead in a water tank in a haunted hotel yeah you know (laughs) so like and I don't even like true crime yeah it's very interesting how they did it as well because she was on tumblr she used tumblr kind of like as a like as a blog like as a diary Mm. um so you have lots of her blog entries being read out as well which is just like an interesting way to to do a documentary like all the talking heads are quite unique there's like the hotel manager people worked in hotels like obviously people who are like trying to solve the case and then like internet sleuths and like it's just there's like so much going on so it's it's, yeah it's definitely an interesting one that's so interesting the idea of like someone's blog being read out like this is truly Mm -hmm. a 21st century case isn't it oh yeah yeah definitely, definitely like I don't think I've heard of that before and that's given me a new anxiety so thanks thanks for sharing that my god (laughs) if anyone ever murders me do not read out my blog on the tv (laughs) oh what's your quick fire favorite this week my quick fire favorite is a song by an artist that i found through instagram reels called lofi the song is called street by street But just to go back to Lofi for a minute, because I think she's really interesting. She's a singer-songwriter and a cellist, but she mostly plays guitar in her videos. Her sound is like really jazz-inspired and classic, but her lyrics are all super modern. And her voice sounds like she could sing the background in like an old 40s movie. But like, (laughs) in in the best way, it's got this really, really lovely timbre. Like, Hosier and Dodie both follow her, so that gives you an idea of the vibe. (laughs) so street by street is this song about reclaiming like the geographical landscape that you're in after a breakup where it's all full of memories Mm -hmm. um and it reminds me a lot of the movie someone great if anyone has seen that i don't think you have no i don't think you would like someone great to be honest but okay um, (laughs) but it reminds me a lot of that movie but i wanted to read out the lyrics of the second verse because as usual that's my favorite so (laughs) It goes, the cafe where you asked me for my name, the bookstore we spent five hours hiding from the rain, 
It's like a game of Monopoly, except I steal back all my property and leave you on the ground. And I know that I'll see you one day on the street with a girl on your arm, but I won't let that keep me from this town. (laughs) And I think that that's a really relatable feeling, but it's not one that I've ever heard a full song about, so it just Mm. felt quite fresh. Nice. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, do you have a route for us this week? I do indeed. So, a couple of weeks ago, I had a spirited debate where, <laughs> <laughs> with my friend Lyndon, author of the Heroes Arc series, which everyone should read, about the word peel versus unpeel. Now, Lyndon thought that the correct word for the verb to peel or to unpeel say in the instance of taking the skin off a banana should uh-huh. should be unpeel so unpeel the banana because you are removing the peel i argued yeah. <laughs> that the only reason that we call the skin the peel is because you peel it off and uh-huh. that the verb has taken on the noun form because of repeated usage but it is ultimately redundant to say unpeel because for any other instance of the action, like if you were removing a sticker from something, you'd just say you peeled it, not that mm-hmm. you unpeeled it. Yeah. I, I also said that un-anything should be n- negating that action, such as like untethered or undone. Mm-hmm. Right? You with me so far? Yep. <laughs> so he then argued that unpeel would be just as valid as peel in either context. I was irate. (laughs) (laughs) But I looked it up and it turns out we're actually both correct. So here's here's the answer to this debate. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, in Old English and Middle English, the prefix un was often used to intensify a verb rather than to negate it. So there's an early example from Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida. Or, um, mm. from around 1602 and it says sweet rouse yourself and the weak and wanton cupid shall from your neck unloose his amorous fold so the dictionary like unloose there means like to loosen yeah which makes me raging <laughs> <laughs> um, but the dictionary gives several examples of this un usage that are now considered obsolete rare or dialectical in the 17th century, the verb unsolve meant to solve. From right, the yeah. 16th century to the early 20th century, unstrip meant to strip. And from the 16th to the 19th century, unbear means to lay bare. Right. You even have unempt means to empty, Ooh. which I'm going to start using just because it's such a ridiculously <laughs> hard word to say. Unempt. <laughs> And unthaw meant to thaw. And then it goes on to say, one redundant or perhaps extended example of un that's seen a lot today is the use of unpeel to mean peel. (laughs) So Mm. there you go. You can say unpeel and it isn't wrong, Lyndon. It's just redundant. (laughs) (laughs) And that's my root. It's a root rant. How has Shakespeare made it into like every section of this podcast episode so far? Like... Because he invented English. 
<laughs> I just feel like we've never really mentioned Shakespeare on the podcast much before and all of a sudden he's, he's here. Yeah, well, what can I say? Clearly, <laughs> clearly the dude's in, in the ether or something. <laughs> oh, good stuff. So, do you have a question for us? I've not done my insight Oh, yet. sorry, do you have an insight for us? Sorry, I, I read the wrong bit of my script. <laughs> yes, I do. So it's Pisces season. Mm-hmm. I'm a Pisces, for those who aren't aware. Fishy, fishy. I think it's my birthday, like... When does this go up? Fifth. It's my birthday four days after this episode goes up. <sighs> and I just thought I would read out a little thing about Pisces this week. So what I'm about to read is actually from a candle company that we both love uh, called The Honeymoon Apothecary. Yep. And amongst their collection, they have some Zodiac candles. So this was just a post they put up to shout out the fact that they have a Pisces candle. (laughs) Um, But it's very lovely, so I wanted to share it. A Pisces woman is the dreamer of the Zodiac. The flow of the ocean and the glitter of low sunlight sprinkled on waves. She is intuitive, not of this world, a head in the cloud and her heart in the sea. The cherry blossom petals that adorn pavements, lavender tea and crooning love songs. She swims in shimmering turquoise, messy hair and sparkling eyes. Entire galaxies lie in her mind. Psychic and sweet, her intuition is unmatched. She is the feel of cashmere on bare skin, warm and inviting. A pink rose in full bloom, gentle and loving. The sticky sweetness of candy floss and scent of magic at a fun fair. She's the soft whisper of I love you on a lover's breath. Rose quartz and aquamarine. With ink-stained fingertips and paint-dyed hair, she creates the worlds she sees in her dreams. You can find her in ballet beside the water that heals her, adorned in flowers and delving deeper into her spirituality, talking to gods old and new. (laughs) Holy shit, man! That's beautiful. I know, it's so lovely. And I was just like, well, I'm going to save that because I enjoy it. I feel like Um, anyone that doesn't love you as much as that post did isn't isn't worthy of your time. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I just thought that was very lovely. And uh, happy birthday season to all the fellow Pisces out there. Happy birthday season to Emily. (laughs) Do you have a question for us this week? I do. So this week's question is slightly different because I wrote it, but it's based off a comment that I got on TikTok and a conversation that I had with a friend. So I basically merged those things into a question for us. So the question is, where do you find book recommendations? Because you always seem to love the books you read. And I thought this would be interesting to discuss because... On here, like, we only share books that we enjoy. Like, we decided very early on that it was going to be, like, a positive place. Mm. Like, we've definitely both read books that haven't made it onto the podcast. Yeah. But I would also say that we are both really good at selecting books that we're pretty sure we're going to like. Mm-hmm. So I just thought it might be interesting to just kind of tell some people how we find the stuff that we like. Nice. Well, do you have an answer ready? Yeah, I can go first. So I'd say most of my 
recommendations come from being online so like goodreads tiktok instagram twitter like just anywhere um i follow lots of like-minded people like people with similar interests to me and i also follow lots of artists who do book related art and i found loads of cool books that way also like following your favorite authors also leads to lots of good book recommendations because they share stuff they like and that's often a good sign of whether you'll like it or not however i would say i don't really like go in blindly with like whatever like the masses are saying i should read um i kind of like to do my research a little bit to see why a person likes it just so i know if it's the kind of thing that i like in a book Mm. so like i like to look at the synopsis and kind of see if it's my kind of thing and the videos or posts that i often follow the recommendations on are ones where it's like this is my favourite book and why. Or like, if you enjoy this book, you may like this one. Here's why. Yeah. <laughs> like I like to hear the reasoning behind it. Basically, I pay attention to recommendations, but I do my own research to see if it's a book that I'll like. Nice. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I am similar to you in the way that like, I am quite discerning with my recommendations, but probably one of my main sources of finding a book is if someone that I know that really knows me says to me, you'll enjoy this book. Like, yeah. I I am really likely to read that, but I will go and research it first. Yeah. But apart from that, probably my main way of finding books is through artists whose work I really like, I want to read what they are reading. So I follow Florence Welch's book club on Instagram between two books and Maisie Peters book club and they're both musicians but their lyrical style I really enjoy so I feel like whatever they're reading is something that I would enjoy. Yeah. And same with if I'm reading a book and it references another book then I'm really mm. likely to go and read that other book. Or if, you know, yeah. I'll, I'm the type of person that loves reading the acknowledgements and mm. something that I love that authors have started doing is putting, like, other authors in their acknowledgements. Yeah. And being like, oh, this this was a huge influence on this book. Because then I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'll probably like that too then. <laughs> yeah. I'm not online as much in the, like, following a lot of writers because I find that quite overwhelming because <laughs> there's too many recommendations. I follow a like select few <laughs> and I'm not on like book talk and I'm not on goodreads. I really should be on goodreads <laughs> but I'm not so yeah I mostly just go by the material that I have and being like okay what did the person that made this like? Yeah I thought as well I would add like on the note of like always seeming to love the books that we read I would just say that I feel like I've sort of found my groove with like finding books Mm. (laughs) recently like the past sort of year or like over a year really I have honestly like loved every single book I've read apart from like a handful and I think it's because I'm choosing to read books purely on what I want rather than like oh this is popular so I should try it just to like see what Mm. the fuss is or like my friend said I like this and I want to be nice yeah <laughs> like or like like I just don't read stuff because I feel like I should now 
like I know I come on here a lot and I'm like this is my new favorite book or (laughs) I loved this so much but like I am being genuine I've just found really good books because I'm like going on like my own instinct yeah rather than prescribed so yeah (laughs) no I I would agree and I think like something that I found as well is going into bookshops when we were allowed and Mm. just actually browsing and like not because for the whole of uni I'd go into a bookshop and you'd be targeting a couple of sections because you'd be like oh I need to get this book for a class and you'd maybe see something else in that section and be like oh that would be quite helpful I'll read that yeah but now I literally do go in and just like judge a book by its cover which is bad but I'll be like I'll look around I'll be like what looks appealing (laughs) yeah no I definitely like do do that as well I just obviously haven't really done it this year because Mm -hmm. we can't but yeah that is something I do like to be fair is normally the tables Mm -hmm. I like go to you know when like there's like a they've done a display on something and it's like this kind of book and if you can see a bunch of books that you like on that table then you're pretty much guaranteed that the other books on that table (laughs) you're gonna like as well yeah Um, so I quite like looking at those when you're allowed into bookshops oh I miss bookshops me too alas (laughs) (laughs) I actually had a conversation the other day where I was like I feel like alas is the word of like this this year (laughs) because everyone's like oh we could do this but but we can't yep (laughs) alas alas (laughs) we cannot okay are we done yes we are we are finished Again, did not write down my spiel, but let me <laughs> let me go. If you have any comments or questions for us, please email infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. We have social media, which is linked in the show notes, along with everything that we talked about today. And please rate and review us on your podcast apps, because that helps us out. Please do. And because Rebecca is going to start being social media queen (laughs) please keep an eye on our instagram and interact with whatever appeals to you so that i know what appeals to you (laughs) yes (laughs) okay love you Bye. bye